This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast with Robert Vore and Steve Austin. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. All right, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore. I'm one of your hosts, and I am joined today, as always, by my co-host, who is known simply by Cinnamon. Cinnamon, how are you today, man? <laughs> oh, that makes me feel like a male stripper. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Oh, I debated not using that one because I knew that's what you were. I knew that's what it was. <laughs> you knew I was going to say that. Well, you yeah. did it. It's not my fault. That's all right. Do not provoke children to wrath. You know what can I say? Is that a proverb? Um, I know somebody said it. Yeah, fair enough. Got written down somewhere. I don't know. How are you doing this week, Steve? You know what? I'm sitting in a massage chair. Can you hear Ooh. it? Mm, not at the moment. Nice. Yeah, I am. I'm digging it. It's yeah. it's uh it's Monday, but it's Friday. Right. Yeah. So it's all good. How are you? I'm good. It's the Friday that we're recording this, which is right before the Monday that we release it, which is always a little confusing, but uh, it's the tail end of my spring break from my day job teaching, not from my evening classes. So it's been, I've had the days off, but the evening's on. And you have a new podcast coming out, hashtag Ask Cinnamon Steve. <laughs> hashtag you're so wrong. No. Uh, I do have a new podcast coming out. I wasn't going to even talk about it on this show. Oh, but, uh, well, fine. Nobody goes. But since to... you brought it up, <laughs> since you brought it up, it's totally different from this show. It's a it's thirty minutes once a week. Hashtag Ask Steve Austin. So um, yeah, asking asking the hard questions, whatever you got. It's it's like the male dear Abby mm. with no filter. So um, if you're expecting me to be all sweet and talk about Jesus and not cuss, don't go listen to that show. Uh, and if you go listen to that show and get offended, don't stop listening to this show. <laughs> so uh, very two very different shows uh, for very different purposes. But yeah, it's fun. I'm excited to do it. It'll be a little uh, a little offshoot at the CXMH. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. Been on the wrestler to answer some questions. I've heard. Yes. And then yes. this is Stone true. Cold advice. Have you ever watched the TV show Thirty Rock? No. It's got Tina Fey and Alec Baldwin. Well, no. We're, we're, Brooke and I are watching through, and there was. Does she have a glass eye? Tina Fey. Yeah. I have no idea. Okay, go ahead. You and okay. Brooke are watching it. Yeah, and uh, we're in one of the later seasons. Last night we were watching, and there's an episode where. Alec Baldwin's character is trying to get uh, one of the, a congresswoman who is bothering him about something or other, trying to help her opponent so that she doesn't get reelected and he doesn't have to deal with her anymore. And the opponent's name is Steve Austin. And there's this entire episode around electing this guy, Steve Austin, who just has like the craziest ideas for government and he wants to build casinos on the moon and everything. And the whole time we're sitting there watching, just thinking, this is amazing. 
How that funny. a whole episode based around a, a different Steve Austin. A guy named Steve Austin. Yeah. Is that show still being produced or is this a rerun? No, it's we were watching Netflix. Oh, okay. I was going to say, man, that show's been on a long time. No, we're watching through on Netflix. We typically stick with shows on Net, like that have already aired all the way through because we don't have oh, cable. Oh, we do the same thing. Yeah, we don't pay for yeah. cable. And then we just get yep. impatient. So we yeah, until same here. Yeah, we done. binge watch something. I'm almost done with West Wing. I think I've got one season left. Oh, man. West Wing is, especially the first four seasons before Aaron <sighs> Sorkin left. Yes. Uh, they... Are probably it's one of the, the greatest shows until the second show that I've seen the most amount of times in my whole life because I'll just so rewatch good. the first four seasons repeatedly. So so good, such a great show. Mm-hmm. Also, in exciting news, our book is now released to the general public on Amazon. Woo woo! So general public, we would love for you today to go buy it and mm-hmm. to leave a review, to leave an honest yes. review, just like you've already done on iTunes, we're sure if you would go leave an honest review on Amazon of the I Love Jesus but book, that would be fan-freaking-tastic. Yeah, we'll have the link in the show notes to the Amazon page, uh, as well as I Love Jesus com. You can share that link with your friends. It has you know a little description there. We don't we don't make a ton off of each book, obviously, because it's not very expensive. But every little bit helps, and mostly just getting getting the message out there. It's one that we believe in, obviously, of embracing the tension between faith and mental health. We believe in that message. So the more that we can get it out there to people, the better. Yes. Hey, if you have a suggestion on a guest for this show, if you have heard someone on another podcast, if you have um, seen somebody on Twitter like blowing it up or in a, a chat about mental health or whatever, a a church leader or a mental health professional, and you think, man, they'd be so good for CXMH, send us an email. Yeah, Put us in touch. Drop Definitely. their name. Uh, we would love to to connect. So yeah, send that to us. Absolutely. And while we're on the subject of asking you to do things, feel free to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. Leave us a review on either of those. It would really help us out. All right, so this episode is outstanding. Yes. Paul, Paul Young. Young, part two. You'll, you'll recognize him, or you'll remember him, uh, from an episode we did a while back about the shack and lies we believe about God. We enjoyed that episode so much that immediately after finishing recording it, we emailed him and asked if we could do a follow-up. And this is that follow-up. So it was great to have him back on. This episode is emotional and raw and vulnerable. And I know that we say it almost every time, but one of the best conversations we've had yet. Yeah, he's one of my favorite humans on the whole planet so yeah i'm super excited to share this one and then also friday we have our liturgy of the forsaken special episode coming out we um did not have the response that we thought we would get from you listeners um as far as sharing your struggles sharing your laments and things like that but we still have um some commentary from Liz Edmond, who wrote Queer Virtue, and also from Paul Young, who you're about to hear. So their thoughts around Good Friday, plus thoughts from Robert and I. So be sure and check out that special episode, which will be live this Friday morning. All right, well, let's get right into it. Here is part two 
of our conversation. I guess not necessarily part two because it's not like we cut one part in half, but here is our second conversation with Paul Young. Are you not going to say without further ado? Without People... further ado. Thank you. God. Well, it's a, I can't keep track of all the running gags we have nowadays. I feel like we <laughs> have introduced a handful. Oh, all right. Well, here it is. Here Listen we go. Up. Roll footage. <laughs> all right. Welcome back to the show. Uh, as always, I'm here with Steve, and we are so excited to be joined again back for the second time by William Paul Young. Paul, how are you doing today? Ah, pretty good. It's a little bit overcast in the Pacific Northwest, which is exactly the way I like it. <laughs> and <laughs> so I'm off the road for four days, which is great. It's been kind of a whirlwind, but uh, yeah. Why? You got something new going on? <laughs> oh, <laughs> between movies and new books and let's see, a video series for TVN and, uh, and Heart of Man. Uh, with Jason Pamer. Ah, uh, no, not much. <laughs> you are a busy, busy man. Well, thank you for taking time out to hang out with us for this. Oh, yeah, no, I sure appreciate it. Glad to yeah, have you back. Well, actually, we can start right there. Last time we talked to you, the movie was about to release. We talked to you, I think, the week of release, so right beforehand. What's been happening there? It's been out for a few weeks. How's, how's all that going? Well, it started off uh, twice above expectations. Um, from the professional commercial side. So it had a great launch. And uh, um, and then it didn't peter off. It's uh, the second weekend has been better than the first weekend, which is uh, a lot of times things drop off, but it seems to be picking up speed. So they think it'll probably have about a six week run uh, through Easter, which would be really great. Uh, but it's already, you know, it's already performed well above expectations, which everybody's kind of thrilled about and and somewhat surprised. Uh, probably Lionsgate is as surprised as anybody. Yeah. But it's <laughs> now, you mentioned last time that you have a cameo in this movie, right? I do. It's is so your, funny. Do you, do you have an agent? Are you taking bookings for new <laughs> movies now? You're going to branch out? <laughs> What's funny is that um, Gil Netter, who's the producer, um, he told me that he's never done a movie where the author was alive, you know, an a, a book adaptation, uh, that he didn't put the author in it. And uh, so I was on the first day set because Lionsgate asked me to pray a blessing over the entire cast and crew, which was pretty cool. And um, at the end of the day, I, I hear Gil, hey, Paul, you want to be in a cameo? I went, what? What? For real? Because I didn't know that he did that um, until after he asked me. Mm. And I said, sure, what do I have to do? This is really simple. You just walk through this scene. And it's the scene where Willie and Mackenzie are talking. Um, Willie walks over with the dog. That's Tim McGraw. And he says, summer's last hurrah, because the kids are all being packed into the car. And there's this interchange between um, Sam Worthington and Tim McGraw. And in one of those, you're looking straight at uh, Tim, and through the background walks kind of a little overweight, balding, <laughs> minorly elderly white guy, and uh, <laughs> carrying a book. So what's fu what's funny is is that you know I've walked most of my life, right? So it's like, well, that can't be that hard. <laughs> but but then you think about it, it's yeah. like signing your name. 
once you start thinking about it, everything kind of goes different. So it only took five takes, but I, I nailed it. <laughs> Is the book you're carrying the shack? No, they just uh, handed me a big a big book. I don't even know what it was. Some encyclopedia maybe or something. I'm not sure. How funny. So I, I'll have to confess, I missed it. I looked for you because you told us that you were going to have a cameo on the, on the first episode. We'll put the... By the way, we'll put the link to the first episode with Paul in the show notes if you want to uh, yeah. go check that out. But I looked for you and looked for you, and I guess I just I missed you. I was like, man, where was he? <laughs> you must, yeah, you must have blinked. <laughs> maybe, oh, maybe next awesome. time you'll get a speaking role. Oh yeah, you maybe gotta work time. your way up. So wh no, while we're on the shack, we asked, we tweeted out, you know, for our listeners if they had any questions for you, and they sent some in. Um, we were going to do them all all together at the end, but I think one kind of fits here while we're here on the shack. Will asked, what's the best or worst feedback you've heard about the shack, and how do you process all of that for yourself? Oh, that's a great question. The best feedback, I mean, I could just start telling you stories of what's happened as a result of the, of the movie already. Um, you know, churches have taken a whole bunch of their folks, you know, two or three hundred, and then uh, went back this weekend and took you know, a thousand plus. So it, they want this to become part of the conversation. But there are so many stories uh, of how it has. Um, and if you want, I'll tell you one. Yeah, um, bring it on. Okay. So I did a, I was involved in a screening in Little Rock, Arkansas. And um, it was for the, the largest African American denomination in the world, Kojic. And uh, Kojic has never allowed a picture show to be uh, shown at one of their conferences, and this was the first time. So was, I don't know, three or four hundred of their leaders, including Bishop Blake, who is an absolute priceless human being. And um, so we watch the screening, and then you know, it's it kind of leaves you in a in a space where you either have to process or something. And um, and I also I talked a little bit, answered a few questions, and then did book signings and hugged people, which is what I normally do. It's the only way you can redeem book signings. And um, so so in the line, a, a large, I mean, tall um, African-American pastor from Flint, Michigan, comes through the line. His name is Kevlin Jones, and Kevlin is a pastor in Flint. And Kevlin is married to Joyce, and Joyce wasn't there at the moment. So Kevlin comes through, and he, he, he I'm a little guy, like five foot six in a wish, and and Kevlin's six foot something. And he just kind of wraps me up and he begins to get very emotional. And he says to me in my ear, he just says, Paul, I can't believe it took a movie to free me from the guilt that I've been under for the last 10 years. Mm. And I'm going like, what's the story? And he goes, well, in the last 10 years, we've lost two of our daughters, one two years ago. Um, she'd worked for Delta Airlines, but she got sick, and and they think it could have something to do with the water issues in Flint, and um, and then I mean they couldn't do anything. But ten years ago, and when he says, "I can't believe it took a movie to uh, free me from the guilt for the last ten years," you know that ten years ago it's got to be the trigger, right? Well, yeah. ten years ten years ago, um, they have uh, another daughter who was uh, uh, somewhat wayward and rebellious, and would all asking for help and they would give help and then she would push them away and then she'd get in a jam and call for help and they and she'd push them away <clears throat> and uh one night she calls for help she needed help moving 
And Kevlin says, and I had church work to do, so I pushed her away. And that night, and that night, while moving, she was brutally raped and murdered. Oh, God. And so it just like for 10 years, he said, and I know I've been poisoning my community of faith. I talk about forgiveness, but I didn't know how I didn't know how to deal with it myself. And he said, a movie has freed me. Well, that, you know, that was incredible in itself. Later, uh, Michelle Duffy, who her and her two brothers have D3, which is a marketing promotion company that works um, more with the African-American community. And they're inc incredible people. So Michelle and, and her brothers uh, interview people after the show uh, if they want to, it's just, um, voluntary. And she comes to me at the end of the evening and she says, I interviewed this couple, Kevlin and Joyce Jones, and they just <laughs> fell, fell, just fell apart on the set. But she says to me, Paul, if this movie was only for them, it's enough. It is enough. And, um, so I, so as you can hear, I hadn't met Joyce and, but that was all right. I'd met Kevlin. And so <clears throat> I get an, <clears throat> I go to Little Rock airport uh, to fly through Atlanta back to Portland, Oregon. And, um, cause that and makes I, sense. <laughs> well, I know, but you know, everything goes through Atlanta. When oh, you're airports. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I get into a great conversation, which turns out one of the Kojic theologians who is just uh, a prince of a man. I mean, we are in it. Uh, we're, we're talking about, uh, early church and, which a lot of people think is 7:30 service, but um, <laughs> it's uh, so we're, I'm I'm reading him stuff from that I've collected. He's talking to me, and he goes like, "I never have these conversations. This is great." So the whole day felt choreographed, and I I I know the plane is packed. There's a huge waiting list on standby, and um, but I get in my seat, which is on 12 on the window, and there's three three on each side. And a guy comes, sits on the aisle. So there's an empty seat between us. And so it's like, I wonder who's going to come sit with me. And the last person to get on the flight, a woman, she's got three bags. I don't recognize her. She was walking down the aisle and she comes, sits down. I help her, you know, stash some of her, her bags because all the overheads are full. And, um, and the woman in front of us, in the row in front of us named Pam, who was at the conference, leans between the seats and looks at her and says, and points and at me and she says you have the best seat in the house oh. and the, and this gal goes like what and she goes the author of the shack and the woman next to me just turns to me and melts <sighs> it's it's joyce jones get out oh my goodness it's joyce and i hadn't <sighs> met her i didn't recognize her and one seat had come available and kevlin had insisted that she take it and uh, instead of both of them waiting for the next flight, he said, I'll catch up to you in Atlanta. You need to take this flight. And um, so she comes, sits next to me for an hour and we just unpack this. I give her my contact information. And two days later, I get a phone call from Kevlin and he says, Paul, I've got to tell you that Joyce has slept for the first two nights in 10 years without nightmares. And I've slept without, without guilt. And uh, I mean, come on. Right? It's awesome. It's it, amazing. It's amazing, but it's it's not shocking to me, Paul. It yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, it makes course. 
since. Man, let me tell you, I, <laughs> it was such a different experience for me going to watch this movie after reading the book as many times as I have read it, knowing what was going to happen. It was, that was the most horrifying experience like she's sitting there at the picnic table colored and i'm going just keep coloring missy yeah, just I know, keep... I know. oh my goodness it was it was such a, a i don't know it was like like you knew what was going to happen but you just oh you wanted it to be different even though you didn't want it to be you know it was just oh what a what an experience when when he went to the shack the first time yeah, with with the police. From that moment till the re- end of the movie, I cried. Uh, yeah, me too, <laughs> dude. Uh, they did a great <laughs> job. You did not lie when you said this was the best book to screen adaptation that you'd ever seen. You did not lie. You absolutely told the truth. It was phenomenal. It it's amazing, and you can tell that they brought their heart to it as well as their craft because they really wanted to do a good job, and and they wanted to maintain the impact, and uh, and you can tell that. They did. They succeeded. It's not cheesy. It's not doesn't have the little hook in the propaganda. It didn't reduce the art of it. And it opened up space so that people could hear for themselves. Yep. Um, I, I think it's spectacular. All right. So what about what about the most difficult thing oh. you've ever heard about the shack? Um, you know, as far you're talking about the movie and specifically, mm, we can go book or movie. Yeah, I think okay. either. Because <clears throat> right now. I'm hearing nothing negative about the movie. And um, so that's not happening, except for those people who refuse to go to it because it's, of course, heresy. You know? sure. So um, um, the, most, the most difficult thing about the book in general is, well, I'll tell you the most difficult thing that's around the book. There's, there's a lot of conversation that is, um, where people have been challenged by their paradigms or whatever. And again, a lot of folks who are upset with me and the books that I write have not read them. And, and, and I would right. say over, over 90 percentile, you sure. know, and so you've got some voices out there. And, um, and yeah, you know what, in, in the community of faith, we have to understand that, that, that Christians don't believe in the same God, you know, that there is this huge spectrum of how we relate to God. And, um, and it's quite diverse, even within the same community of faith, you'll find quite different points of view. Um, so this has got to become an engagement in which we're able to talk about the questions that we have and, and recognize that our addiction to being right is an addiction and we need to relax a little bit and allow the Holy Spirit to teach us because none of us believes today exactly what we did 15 years ago. Well, at least I hope not. Thank God. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah. So oh. the the hardest thing about any of this has been when, and it's been exclusively Christians, uh, my own people, um, who have when they when they realize that they couldn't go after me because I didn't have any secrets and I didn't have any reputation to uphold and I didn't have any job security issues with regard to this, that they went after my kids. Um, oh that's, wow! That's that's the hardest thing. They people withdrew. <laughs> lifelong relationships for my kids with no explanation and it was basically that they didn't want their kids contaminated by my kids oh that's awful uh, it is awful Mm -hmm. and uh and then you know but 
but even in the middle of that, there's redemption. We had the one of my youngest son's best friends was killed um, mm-hmm. in a in just a tragic loss, a shock loss, and um, um, on his uh, dirt bike, uh, unexpected, and it just it turned it took my son sideways. I mean, it just was such a a dominant loss in his life, and um, but you know one of the one of the families that was very accusatory during this time um their daughter who was really one of their daughters who was really struggling ended up i mean we had kids show up at our house for like 15 days they just stayed there and um and including a daughter of of one of the families that had been fairly fairly um uh accusatory i think best way i can say it Mm -hmm. but during during the memorial service that the kids put together for for adam um she came up and just the the mother came up and just hugged me and said how's my daughter doing you know she's not talking to us um so but she was talking she she wasn't talking to her family but she was talking to us and um and i think that's that was such a bit bridge builder but man at some point we as especially as a community of faith we've got to get we've got to start celebrating the things that we agree about and start trusting the Holy Spirit instead of trying to play the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. man, you know, it's, we cause more devastation because of our own stuff. But then that kind of makes sense, you know, because um, the community of faith are usually a gathering. <laughs> this is, this is Paul ta- writing to Timothy, right? And he says, I think it's a pastoral comment. He says, Timothy, Here is a statement that is true and worthy of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all mankind, especially believers, right? And you just go like, oh, yeah, he's been part of a community of faith. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, like, okay. Yeah, we're the ones that need it. Absolutely. Well, I know. And the religious people have always had the furthest to go. I mean, that was true in the time of Jesus. It hasn't changed. And, And I... I count myself in that group too. So I get it. My blog certainly doesn't have the following that the Shack has, but it is always a 100%, like no deviation from this. It is always the Christians who read a headline on my blog, don't read the blog, and then blast me in an email, phone call. And it's so obvious by their criticism that they haven't even read the article. Yeah, um, right. I mean, I have, I have a, a family member who I, I just got a just a terrible message just today over an article I wrote. And I'm like, I know you haven't read this, but I, I don't know. I don't know. What what do you do there? You just you just well, you just pray I, and ask for the like you said last time, ask for the grace to get through today and just keep moving. Well, yeah. But again, you know what what the Holy Spirit may prompt you to do today may be absolutely different than what the Holy prompts you to do in in two minutes from now. Mm, you know, yeah. and and you see that in the life of Jesus, right? So that when when his mom says do something at the wedding at Cana, he says, "Woman, what do I have to do with this? My time hasn't come." I mean, it's and mm. you can see the twinkle in his eye. He's going like, "Hey," because he says, "I don't say anything unless I hear the Father say it." In his in his relationship with the Father, and Father saying, "No, your time hasn't come." Mary says, "Do something." Father says, "No." He says, "No," and what does she do? Hey, you guys over there, you know, you servants, come here. Whatever this, whatever my son tells you to do, do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jewish, Jewish mom, right? And, <laughs> and, and Jesus does it. 
30 seconds later, right? Because huh. why? Because now the father says, all right, now your time's come 30 seconds later. So how you deal with someone, man, live from the inside out with relationship to them. Because sometimes it means you take a stand and you have the conversation. Don't judge their intent because a lot of times people are bringing what they got. This is what they got. And they're telling you in the only language they know how about what they're upset about, what, what, what they're afraid of. Yeah. And, and if you're not at risk in the conversation, then an actual conversation can happen. Oh, and, that's so good. Oh, it's, it's so helpful. But, yeah. but that means sometimes it's to be quiet. And you mm -hmm. see this all over the all over the life of Jesus. There were times where he engaged. There were times where he really got in their face, and it was usually with the religious people. But but he didn't do it based on an accusation they made. He went sideways. That is, if you look, I think there's only two or three times where he doesn't answer a question with a question, and the question goes deeper into that person's heart. It's something that yeah. is actually what's going on, not what the person's presenting. So Jesus doesn't engage them, uh, one, at, at the accusation level, he engages them in terms of what's going on in their own heart. And by asking a question, he creates an invitation to relationship because he's, so good. he's actually interested in their response. And, and this is part of the downside of modern technology. The good side, one of the good sides, two of them, is that it's broken down barriers of information that kept little cloistered kingdoms uh, self-protected, which I think that's a good result. Another one, it has given a voice to the voiceless, which is good. It's, it's leveled the playing field in so many ways. The downside is that it's created an, an anonymity behind which people can hide and express things that are destructive that are not the life of Jesus. And it's kind of yes. like, if I'm allowed to, and this is, I'm talking about my own people of faith here. I'm not talking about the world in general. I'm talking about people who professed to, to have the very life of Jesus within them. And yet they hide behind their, their and, and they let their anonymity uh, be, be the doorway through which the brokenness of their hearts get expressed and they feel more in control and safer because they don't have to take the risk of a real relationship. In their mind, they're dealing with somebody else's head and idea and relationships don't exist just from the heads. You know, you can have some great intellectual conversation, but this is about eyeball to eyeball. This is about knowing the other's story. And let me tell you, once you know the other story, you cannot maintain the kind of objective, um, detached um, positioning that so many people do in terms of their conversations. We need to care about the person before we ever talk to the person in terms of trying to convince anybody about anything. That's not our job anyway. You That's know, our, so good. Yeah, our job is to trust the Holy Spirit, not play the Holy Spirit. And we don't, we're not good at that. It's kind of like, hey, you know, where is Jesus? He hasn't showed up for like, what, 2,000 years. Well, you know, if he's not going to convict them, I'm, I'm going to. Yeah. Because you know, the Holy Spirit is just not very good at this. Mm -hmm. And I know, I know I can do a better job. Yep. So it just, it just gives a, an avenue through which vitriol and all kinds of destructive things that are not helpful. They're not helpful. And they're definitely not loving. They're not an expression 
uh, of the life of Jesus. And they go, well, what about, woe to you Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs and, and sepulchers, you know, full of dead men's bones. I mean, that's pretty confrontational. <laughs> but, but woe doesn't mean damn you. Woe means stop. It's yeah. in, in the Hebrew, in the Aramaic, it's similar to what we do when we're trying to get a horse to stop. That's running toward a cliff, you know, and Jesus is standing up and going like, hey, stop. Yeah. yeah. You know, don't this you is not good for you. This is not good for you. And it's not good for those who are within your frame of reference. So stop. And that kind of shock, you know what that meant? That at night, Nicodemus, who was the teacher of Israel, would come talk to Jesus because he couldn't. You know, he couldn't do it during the day because he was too ashamed, you know, to do it in front of, he, you know, he had a status to maintain and he had a position to maintain, but, but Jesus got through to him. And this man came in the middle of the night going like, so tell me, you know, and, uh, and that is what Jesus accomplished by that confrontation, but he didn't do it all the time. And he only did it with the religious people, you know? And uh, so that should tell us something. Well, like I said, we just got further to go than most people. You know, it. I know it in my own life when I when I'm dealing with a particularly someone that I perceive as a difficult person, or someone who has hurt me, or someone who I know just vehemently disagrees with me on, uh, you know, the things we're not supposed to talk about, politics and religion. When I am able to, and it doesn't happen all the time, but I'm I'm getting there. When I'm able to slow down and see them as a human and not look at the issue, but look at the person in front of me and see the God that lives inside of them. It's, 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 it's exactly what you said. When we're able to, to see their story, hear their story, experience their story with them, and we see them as a, as a person, it changes everything. It totally changes our response. You know, Paul the Apostle writes this beautiful section, and he says, Judge no one according to the flesh. He said, I don't judge anyone according to the flesh. And that means that he's not naive and stupid, but he sees the truth about who a person is rather than the way of their being. Mm. So that changes everything, you know? And, but let me tell you, there, you need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit in certain relationships because people are so stuck in their stuff and they bring it to the table. And, and it's like, so how do I respond today? And sometimes, like, I've got a situation that what I hear and I've been hearing for a while is today you don't give them what they want. Today you don't give them what they want. And, you know, that may change inside another day's grace, but up until this point, you don't give them what they want. And, I, and that happened to me through a long conversation with regard to the film. It was like, no, I had the rights to it. And it was like, no, no, no. And then one day it was like, now lay it down. And let me tell you, when that day came, it surprised everybody. And when I laid it down, I laid it down 100%. No creative control, no ownership, no rights. And I laid it down. And I've never regretted that decision. But again, it's inside the grace of the day, inside that, that response with that person. And a lot of times, we take a snapshot of what's happened, and that's what we put on our computer right in front of our face that's the snapshot of that person and that relationship and and we forget that between the time we took that snapshot and the reality of who knows a day a year who knows that that the holy spirit has been active in their life as well as yours things are not the same but we want to go pull that 
pull that whole album of snapshots out and say, well, okay, that's who that person is. This is who that mm -hmm. person is. And, and part of that is just an issue of control. Um, we want to stay safe and we justify our, our stupidity and our behavior by creating um, an imagination of who that person is rather than take the risk of actually getting to know them. How many times in our relationships with someone have we decided that uh, they're wrong or what they or we've heard what they said and we're not even going to talk to them about it. We're not going to address it. We're just, you know, we're just going to believe that that's the truth. And uh, and even if somebody says, well, no, that's not what they said or that's not what they meant. It's like, oh, yeah, they, they did. Because if we admit yep. that we might might be wrong, that's humbling. And that is like, oh, my gosh. Well, you know, and now I'm in the path of of potentially having to actually deal with the emotional world of face-to-face -face relationship, <laughs> which is which is way riskier and messier than creating imaginations. You know, that's why that's why porn is so attractive, right? Because mm. it's an imagination of a relationship without any of the risks of a real one. Now, mm. the, the cost of it is way higher. And, and I think that's the point that I'm trying to make is that we've, yeah. got, we've got to have eyeball to eyeball relationships. Um, and I'm not saying just within the community of faith, I'm saying across the board. So if we've got a box, a photograph that we've created a Muslim and put them in, or a Buddhist or an atheist or uh, a non-committed or, you know, an addictive person or whatever. Yeah. And then and then we annihilate the box. That is not the life of Jesus. That is our scrambling to be some kind of self-protective uh, control freak. That's now, right. Yeah. Self-preservation. Mm. Yep. And we are we are skilled at it. We know how to divide. We just don't know how to unite. And that's that's where Jesus comes in, because Jesus is the he's a, he's the uniter, but he's not going to do it in a way that doesn't challenge anything that is not of love's kind to remain. And that's the beauty of a God who's a furious fire. Everyone gets salted with fire. The thing is, that fire is always for you, not against you. This is not punitive and retributive, but it is intentional. And it is, the, you know, it is the love of a parent for a child who starts to believe a lie. It's not because child has disappointed you that you go after that lie it's because you love them and the love is furious okay so that transitions us perfect into talking about the one lie we believe about god that we want to talk about today we talked about three of them um, in the previous episode uh, but today i would love to talk about and, and unpack this lie that god is disappointed in me and i think it's the perfect one because any of us who suffer with mental illness we believe this lie at one point or another um, i know that for me it was the shame of being on a church staff and needing medication for a mental illness mm -hmm. that that jesus was not enough that a prayer of faith was not enough that they couldn't put a a cross on my forehead in olive oil and me be miraculously healed but i had to have medication because i was crazy and you couldn't be christian and crazy you had to pick one or the other so talk to us about about this lie that god is disappointed in me yeah and let's unpack that even a little bit more you know if you live inside of a faith tradition in which 
faith is the marker, healing is the marker and all that. And so it's all about being able to stand up and say that, you know, I prayed and look what happened. Um, there is an implicit shaming and it's not because the intention is to hurt people, but there is an implicit shaming in those whose prayers are not answered. And, and it's, it's, it's almost like something's wrong with you uh, because you're in this situation and you're not getting fixed. So you, now you become sort of, um, we don't, we don't want to talk about you because you, you're not a success story and you don't fit inside of our theology where everybody is supposed to be fixed. Yes. And, and, and let me tell you, if we don't have a theology that embraces mental illness, our God is too small. Um, um, I've got two of my cousins, precious, that I grew up with, Toddy and Jennifer. And in the last ooh, 10 years, both took their lives, both struggled with schizophrenia. Um, and, uh, and Toddy on top of that uh, with a really immense narcissistic disorder. And, um, and you know what? Jennifer just got tired. Mm. And, uh, mm. you know, she, she, she just couldn't do it anymore. And, uh, and, and a lot of our theology is, is built by white guys who have lived long enough to declare that they're successful, yeah. you know, and, and it's, it kind of sucks. No, it doesn't kind of suck. <laughs> oh, it really does. So. <laughs> So, um, hmm. this is wow. way more, this is way more tender than I had anticipated, you know. So, um, wow. it's been that's a, thank you. It is, and uh, and I'm going like, come on, you know, uh, where is God when a baby? You know, we had a we had Malcolm who was well into a pregnancy. This is a, a grandson, well into the pregnancy when our daughter-in-law lost her amniotic fluid. And, and Malcolm struggled for a couple of weeks trying to stay alive without any amniotic fluid and didn't succeed, you know? So, yeah. and that's not an uncommon thing. Um, we live in a broken world. And, uh, and if we make the arbiters of our theology, those who, who present themselves as healthy and successful, then the rest of us, you know, what do we do? What do, what do we do with our own brokenness? And, yeah. and, and yet at the same time, you look at our families, any healthy family will move at the speed of the slowest. Mm. But, but our churches can't because they're institutions and organizations unless they become hum, humanized and the institution begins to serve the humanity of, the, of the, the people who are part of that community. Then they'll slow down. And beginning to work at the speed of the slowest and that means the person with the mental illness the person that has the addictive uh the narcissist the, that's inside the, the homeless person that's inside the community and uh and we slow it down so uh, this lie that says that god is disappointed in you and it is a lie it presumes the fact that god had god doesn't know you and 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 frankly a lot of us grew up in a theology where where God didn't know us. In fact, Jesus spent his time trying to trying to cover us with his righteousness, so that God the Father was um, was unaware of how what a piece of crap we were. Right? 
So the, what we're told is, even in our theology, that, that we're a piece of garbage. And then you got to work hard and work yourself into some form of performance that's acceptable enough. But nobody tells you how much is enough. You know, yeah. and so so one one thing that goes sideways, one because it's perfectionist performance that's required because God is perfect. Absolutely. And, and so one thing that goes sideways, all of a sudden, you're at a deficit again. Well, how many times can you be an absolute failure before you just give up? Mm-hmm. And if if religion is about performing our way into the affection and the approval of God and it requires perfect performance, those of us who are broken to begin with we don't have a chance, right? So the lie that says that God is disappointed is fundamentally sitting on this assumption that he doesn't know us, but that's not true. Real love is based on knowing. It's not based on an imagination. And this is why infatuation is not real, but real love is knowing. You know, infatuation is that you're projecting you know, your own need through some image of somebody else. And a lot of times people who are infatuated, at some point they get to know the person and all of that, you know, glorious emotional stuff just evaporates. Why? Because it wasn't even real. It wasn't based on a real person. And God loves us because he knows us. So he has no expectations. How do you, you know, say he, that, Paul? How do you say love is knowing and God loves us because he knows us? That God knows the shame of, you know, the abuse that I endured, that God knows the 20 year pornography addiction, that, you know, that God knows all my junk, all my mess, all these failures, God knows all this stuff. And yet God loves me. How do you say that? Do you have a child or a grandchild? Two children. Okay. Would you, would you relate to your child in the way that we think God relates to us? Oh, absolutely not. Okay. So if our view of God makes him less of a parent with the heart of a parent than we are, then something about our theology is wrong. This is, this is what happened. And I've got, I got a friend who said to me, you know, if, if my children didn't, weren't able to change my theology, my grandchildren certainly did. <laughs> you know, because I with, see our, it with my parents, Oh my uh, word, I see it with my parents. Because, because with our kids, it's still about us. We're at risk. It's about how do we do this? Are we doing it right? And and look, they're in, especially the guys. You know, they're interfering with my schedule. They, you know, and and at some point that begins to change. Hopefully, your kids beat the snot out of your self centeredness. And and then by the time you become a grandparent, it's not about you anymore. It's really about them. And you begin in a way that I mean, I'm way better a grandfather than I was a father. And my kids know it. Mm-hmm. They know it. You know, and it wasn't that I was a bad father. It was that I was still working out so many things and, and it was still about me. So um, in the way that God relates to us, real love is has to be based on knowing. What does Jesus say? Here is the work of eternal life. If you want to know what the work of eternal life is, what is it? Do you remember? Knowing him and the one who he sent. Knowing. Knowing. And everything that is about this face-to-face relationship is knowing. Let me flip it a different way. Anything that drives you towards aloneness is a lie, Mm. right? And so if shame drives you to aloneness, it's shame is a lie. Um, Mm. 
God, God wants to know you, which means that requires presence. So it's not aloneness. We weren't designed for aloneness. God has never been alone. We're created in the image of God. So God climbs into our world and fully knowing us, loves us fully. Now, not naively, not like, oh, I'm going to pretend, you know, and, and I think some Christians have that idea that if, if God, you know, it goes again, uh, sometimes back to the shame thing. If God really knew me, he's like out of here. Yeah. And it's like, it's like, no, that's not true. You know, um, I see Papa standing in the kitchen making yeah. bread going, no, that's Santa Claus. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> making exactly. his list, checking it twice. That's what I see. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So fundamentally, the whole point of that lie is that there is no disappointment in God. There's grief. Grief is real. Mm. Grief is when my child chooses for a time to believe a lie about herself for himself you know i'm grieved but it it doesn't reduce my love for them if anything it expands my compassion you know because compassion is always a response to something um but uh i grieve god grieves but he owns his grief i'm not responsible to fix god i don't have that capacity he's being real and um, and Jesus grieved, and the Spirit grieves. Those are all scriptures. Yeah, but not disappointed, because disappointment requires an expectation of an outcome, right? So, um, when you live by expectations, you you live in a constant state of potentially being disappointed, um, because something didn't go the way that you thought it was. You had an expectation rather than an expectancy, which is a moment by moment living. You have an expectation. Well, God doesn't have any expectations because he knows you. He knows your choices. He knows everything about you. And because he knows you completely, he loves you absolutely fully. And that's never going to change. You don't have the power. Remember in Romans, the last two verses, where it has the list of things that cannot separate you from the love of God? Right. And, and that list includes anything present, anything future, and any created thing which would include you. Wow. A lot, of, a lot of people think they have the power to push God away. Oh, give me a break. You're not that big a deal. Not like that. I mean, you're a big deal to God. I mean, absolutely. But you don't have the power to push God away. Because guess what? Well, and where were you created? Where was creation created? It was created in Christ. Not anything that has come into being has come into being apart from him. You're created in him. Well, this is a God who doesn't do abandonment. This is a God who doesn't do shame. And, and you are in the center of the affection of the Father, if for no other reason that you're created in Christ and you are in him. And therefore, hey, there's nothing that is created outside of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Nothing exists outside. You lapse into non-being. Hmm. A lot of us think that God like blew a bubble of creation outside of himself that's out there and then gets detached. And then it messes itself up. So they send Jesus over there to that bubble to try to build a bubble bridge back to God. It's ridiculous. You know, everything happens within the very being of God. And nothing can separate you from the love of God. That's the truth. So all the lies will drive you to shame. And, uh, uh, you know, and frankly, we get used to the lies and they become our friends. So, yeah. you know, we kind of think, well, if God is disappointed, then, you know, um. I'm a disappointment and therefore I'm going to function like one. Hmm. And, and sometimes the lies become our sanctuaries and it's, it's time to stop that stuff. So gosh, this is so good. Um, 
my gracious. All right. Uh, so we have two questions um, from listeners, but first I, I want to go where we're going here. So you're, you're talking about this God who is love, this God who doesn't do disappointment, this God who doesn't do shame. But I know from the little bit that I know about you that your childhood did not show that kind of, at least not in, if, if, if we relate God to our earthly father in so many cases, from what I know about you, you had a religious but abusive father. And I know that trauma impacts mental health in a major way. So how do you go from that kid? And, and, and tell us some about that, if you will. Unpack a little bit of sure. your childhood for us, if you will, and, and take us on that journey. Yeah. Uh, missionary kid, preacher's kid. My dad didn't have a chip for being a dad. I mean, he was orphaned at 12. Uh, his dad had run away from his first wife and without uh, divorcing her uh, at, at about 47, married a 14-year-old little girl who is my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And um, so my dad's orphaned at 12, uh, uh, shunted into child labor and farms and runs away at 14 into the logging camps. Um, and you know what an aff- affirming environment logging camps probably are. And sure. uh, at 18, uh, has a massive encounter with Jesus that changes the trajectory of his life. He goes to Bible school, meets my mom, uh, who's a nurse. Uh, they get married. I'm born in Grand Prairie, Alberta. And when I'm a year, about a year old, 10 months, uh, the three of us pack up everything and move to the highlands of New Guinea where I grow up. So my dad did not have a framing on his own world. You know, he was part of a generation that didn't know they had baggage. And if they'd have known, they would have known what to do with it. And so they dumped it. They just dumped it on, uh, you know, the weakest around them. And even though there was the intention of love, there was no capacity for it. And and so my dad terrified me. I wanted nothing to do with him. in uh, in the chapter on disappointment, I tell a little story where where my mother guilts him into taking me on a trek, and I'm I must have been six or seven. And as soon as we were out of the compound site, my dad took off, you know, because he he was a man on a mission, and he left me in the dust. And I just remember I I I, I remember seeing the white of his t-shirt disappearing into the jungle, and once in a while, as hard as I could run run. I might catch a glimpse of it again, but I have no memory of ever catching up to him. And I'm just bawling the whole time. And since then, I've had Jesus walk back into that memory and slow me down and take my hand and just walk with me so that there has been a healing in that for me. But man, so, you know, over the course of my life, that was one of my great sadnesses. And and I got into all kinds of trouble because I was looking for a father. Yeah. I was looking. For, I was looking for a father who would tell me the truth about me that that wasn't that I was worthless and a piece of crap, and um, and it, and it put me in some difficult situations, um, and it took me fifty years to wipe the face of my father off the face of God. So partly, you see it in the shack that that Papa doesn't come through the door as a big, you know, white Gandalf with a bad attitude God. Yeah. You know that that omni being behind Jesus. Um, but as this embracing African, I'm, I'm getting as far away from that as I can, but yet in the movie and in the book as well, 
Mackenzie has got to work toward the healing so that he can embrace God in terms of the paternal nature of God. He just can't come through the door that way. Yeah. And um, so, so all of that plays into, into how uh, uh, my relationship, I mean, it took, like I said, 50 years. Mackenzie's Weekend in the Shack represents 11 of those 50 years mm -hmm. um, trying to dismantle why, why am I an addict? Why am I so broken? Why, why did I make the choices that I did? Why do I hide? Why am I so ashamed? You know, why do I keep secrets? All of yeah. those things had, had to be addressed and some of it required therapy. You know, I had to, I had to find a counselor and sit down and, and, and trust the counselor instead of thinking that I was smarter than them. Yeah. Uh, which is a, which is a way to run away. Have, you know, like we're, we're so stuck in our heads that even if we're forced to ask for help, we don't really stay there. We don't let the help help. And um, and we justify our okay. Well, they just weren't very good at it, you know. And I'm I'm telling you, most of the time when somebody says that, um, it's that that person that counselor started to get at something that was really essential, and it started to trigger us. And we're like, ah, um, no, you know what? I'm okay. I'm more in control. I think I can manage my life. Mm -hmm. And we bail out, you know. Mm. Yeah. Gosh. Okay, so before I know we're we're coming up on our time here, so we want to make sure we get our last few listener questions in uh, before our time's up. So and they're doozy. They Good. are. Uh, so Craig asks. Craig's a listener. He asks, "Are you essentially a universalist? And if so, how did you get there?" He uh -huh. clarified ACK labels, so he's not trying to you know necessarily put a label on it, but I think it's just the best right. way he knew to ask. Oh no, I appreciate the question. Um, a lot of people just categorize me as one and don't even ask. And um, and the the other thing is that nobody or very few people tend take the time to define exactly what they're asking, because universalism has a whole lot of history within the faith community back to the early church. Hmm. But it's different. It's it's like, what do you mean by it? Do you mean that? the entire universe was created in Christ, that Christ is the creator, therefore Christ has an implicit relationship with everything in the entire cosmos. <clears throat> is that universalism? Well, it's one of the definitions of it. Well, I'm that. I believe that's true. Um, how about <clears throat> how about that, that Jesus Christ is the savior of all mankind, that, that the finished work is the finished work, that he did it apart from our, our vote, that's Irenaeus, Athanasius, the early church. It's actually Calvin and Luther, um, who said that forgiveness precedes confession and repentance. So scripture says that when, when he died, all died. We all died. When he rose, we all rose. The thing about this salvation is that it doesn't mean relationship. The salvation is like love is unconditional, but relationships always conditional. So we have to work out this salvation and we do it by beginning to submit our knees and our hearts and and walk into this loving relationship and let that love be the furious flame of fire that purifies our hearts. So am I a universalist that and and here's where there is a legitimate disagreement between me and a and a branch of my own people who believe that Jesus only died for a specific group of people. I don't believe that. I don't think scripture teaches it. Uh, I don't think it's tenable. And I think it actually sets up a huge difficulty within the theological uh, 
and, and the potential relationship that we have with Jesus. Um, the early church didn't hold to that, and uh, and I don't either. But I believe that the finished work of, of Jesus was accomplished for every single human being who has ever been conceived. They're included in it, whether they know it or not. Now, God has such a high re respect for humanity that your choices with regard to it actually matter. So potentially, someone can say no for eternity, but God will never stop pursuing them because love wouldn't. <clears throat> and this is, this is where I get falsely accused of being a universalist because they say, well, you believe in universal reconciliation, the doctrine that everyone ultimately will be restored face to face. Now, I don't step over that line. But let me tell you, I push up against it as close as I can <laughs> <laughs> because I want it to be true. I want it to be true. And any, I think any healthy human being would want to want God to have before creation to figure it out a way without the violation of one human will to win everyone back to a loving face-to-face -face relationship. But it'll take fire. It'll take you know, it'll take all kinds of stuff in order to do that. If that's true, I'm in. I'm in. I love it. If so, but I still, the tension is there in the scriptures that there is such a high respect for humanity that potentially we can say no forever. And, and I hold, I live inside that tension and I think it's a legitimate one. So, uh, but I, do I believe all roads lead to God, which is another definition of universalism? Absolutely not. And, and I say it on page 184 or 186, depending on your edition, <laughs> yep. you know, which, where, where Mac says, so do all roads lead to Papa? Jesus laughs and says, no, most roads don't lead anywhere. That's right. But I will, I will go down any road to find you. Mm. And that's the incarnation. That's the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go find the one. And it's, it's not the road we're on. It's us. God doesn't care about the road, you know, and is Jesus the way? Well, yes, because all of creation is created in him. Everything implicitly has a relationship. I think part of our struggle is that we have a very small Jesus and a very small humanity. Jesus is sort of an afterthought to Adam's goof up. And Adam is really the powerful person in the universe. You know, he's the one that determines that most of the universe is just ends up in hell. And it's like, really? We have such a small Jesus, right? So that opens up an entire branch of conversation. And I hope I hope that little bit of clarification is helpful. I read an article uh, just yesterday, actually, from a blog called Unfundamentalist Parenting. And uh, the top uh, Brad Jerzak. Yeah, it's such a Cindy great Cindy Brandt, right? Cindy Brandt. Yeah. The um the title of the article is Every Christian is a Universalist at Baby Funerals. No doubt. Right. No so it's it's where do we where do we change that? Oh, I'm not a universalist once you turn twelve. What's you know the age of accountability and all that stuff that we're talking about? Which is which is totally a myth. It doesn't yeah. exist anymore. And that age of accountability was was because the the alternative freaked us out so bad as we were parents and grandparents that we needed to put a kind of um uh a way out. And so we created this age of accountability at twelve years old. So what about 12 years old in a day. I'm sorry you died. There's nothing I can do for you now. Death wins. You know, yeah, it's going to be hot down there. Well, and, and the thing about children and babies, you know, if we start with total depravity, uh, what do we do? Well, some of them are elect some, you know, God only died for some of them. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I'm going like, uh, 
how do you do that? There is there is a disconnect, and I think part of it is the the leftovers of the Enlightenment and the and modern rationalism that where we got stuck in our heads and we don't have a connection to our hearts. I was with a friend of mine who's an atheist, and he is one of the top researchers in neurological science in the world. And he said, you know, we've discovered there are more neural connections that originate in the heart, biological heart, that go to the head than from the head to the heart. And this is why you can die of a broken heart. And he says, um, and that's and that his point. My point is that we got stuck in our heads. So I'm in a conversation with the guy, two guys, and at a seminary, and there's they're asking me about universalism and inerrancy, two common questions that I get. And we're talking about it. And I said to them, you know what, maybe... Maybe when you have your own children, this whole conversation will be different. Um, and one of the guys says, I have two sons. And I, and I thought in my head, oh, walked into that one, you know, <laughs> like, oh, my. So I said to him, can I ask you how you're going to feel if God has elected your two sons to be an expression of his justice and to be, be tormented for eternity in hell? And he looks at me and he says, not only would I be ecstatic about it, I would have to be. Wow. And I'm going like, you know, one of the two next questions could have easily been, how long have you struggled with pornography because your head is so disengaged from your heart, there's a huge vacuum there. Or mm. tell, me about, tell me about your dad. Yeah. Because something's wrong here. And when we have a theology that is not big enough for mental illness, it's not big enough for babies, it's not big enough for our children and our grandchildren, maybe instead of accusing God to be this vitriolic, abusive darkness behind Jesus, maybe we should question our theology. And I think that's the environment that we're entering into. We just need to do it in a way that is full of the life of Jesus and full of grace and kindness to those that we are in this conversation with. Let's stop dividing the universe, right? 40,000 yeah. denominations in Christianity? Come on, wow. we've, proven, we've proven we can divide everybody up into bits and pieces. Let's see what it's like to try to unify the community of faith. Let's stop our stupidity. And, and stop dragging our darkness into our speech and our language and the ways that we relate to one another. Mm -hmm. And I'm an optimist, you know, because I've never seen God worried. And so mm -hmm. it's like, all right, you know, we could be in the early church, right? If, if, if the consummation of the age isn't for 40,000 years, we're in the early church. We just begun. Yeah. So maybe we're just starting to get some things right. All right. So. Craig also wants to know, and this can be kind of our last thing here, what influential works of literature or books have helped your transformation to a less than mainstream theology? <laughs> All you have to do is read outside your tradition and it'll mess you up. Um, <laughs> so true. Oh my. So, you know, and this is a, another beautiful thing about modern technology, uh, for it's all its downsides. Uh, it has kind of dismantled the walls that kept us from running into people outside our own traditions. So whether it's the mystics or whether it's the early church mothers and fathers or, you know, Athanasius, if you read Athanasius on the incarnation of the word of God, which was what printed in about, well, not printed, but was written in about 300 and some AD and, and basically is, you know, what was God to do when he saw that his creation, whom he loved, was on the road to ruin and about to lapse into non-being? Right? You start reading affidations. It's just like, come on. So uh, over the course of my life, 
I just branched into because questions have become my companions. They're they're among my best of friends. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you you start to explore, and and when you believe that God is good, you don't you're not so afraid of the questions because uh, in the environment I grew up, questions were were rebellion. Absolutely. And, uh, <clears throat> and but they become my friends. So some of you know everything from my own tradition, like an A.W. Tozer, because I come from a Christian Missionary Alliance background, and um, but uh, but branching into the mystics, uh, but you read Jacques Ellul or you read Kierkegaard or Nietzsche. Nietzsche, you know, he blasts the imaginary god, and I think he does a pretty profoundly good job of it. Um, you start finding that God has climbed into the language of other religions, because oh, here's here's a little tidbit at the end of the show. God is not a religious being, has never been a religious being, has no desire to be a religious being, and really can't stand religion, right? <laughs> Love it. Bring it on. Well, I mean, that's the truth. And and so the hist but he loves human beings who bring religion to the table. So you can put those lenses on and begin to look at any religion on the planet, and you will see where God has climbed into it to destroy it, to destroy everything that is wrong about it while keeping anything that is artistic and good and precious and beautiful. And there's no greater disruptor than Jesus. Jesus climbs, when Jesus climbs into your religion, he's gonna mess with it. That's right. And, uh, and, and he does it because he loves you, right? So, you know, so God hates sacrifice. So he climbs in and offers himself up as the sacrifice to destroy sacrifice. I mean, come on. Um, but, but that's the beauty of, of a God who, who engages with the ones he loves, but does it respectfully and and in submission, which is mind blowing, right? So awesome. it's fantastic. Paul, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's always a pleasure. We always gain wisdom and grace from you. Those two things, they just walk hand in hand with you. And, and when you can put those two things together, transformation happens. If you haven't gotten lies we believe about God, go get it. If you have been living under a rock and are not one of the 22 million people who have bought a copy of The Shack yet, you should go <laughs> get a copy of The Shack as well or Eve, or Crossroads, go get them all and just sit and enjoy because, oh man, Paul Young will rock your world. Paul, thank you so much for being here. Definitely. Oh, always an honor. And I uh, so appreciate what you guys are doing and opening up the conversation because every, every bit of this kind of conversation brings healing to the planet, to the cosmos, to humanity. Every, every participation that we make, every time we forgive and let go of a loss and, uh, and be honest and come out of our secrets and aloneness, it changes the world. And together, together, I mean, none of us can do this on our own, um, but we're in this together. So thank you. Oh, thank you. You have a great day, my friend. I will. Blessings on your day. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com.
A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.